Welcome to the New Books Network. I'm Thashara Dibley from the Sydney Southeast Asia Centre, and today I'll be speaking with Russell Toth, who's a senior lecturer in the School of Economics here at the University of Sydney. Russell's a development microeconomist focusing on the development of the private sector in Southeast Asia and the Pacific, and looks at topics such as financial systems, digitization, agricultural value chains, and small and medium enterprises. His research often involves partnering with private and public sector organizations to evaluate programs intended to improve private sector development outcomes. Welcome, Russell. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So one of the reasons we've invited you today is because you and your research partners were recently awarded a major grant by the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation that looks at interoperable digital finance systems in Myanmar, which is sort of your area of focus, and Tanzania. Uh, This is a huge project worth around $3.5 million. So just wanted to say, first of all, congratulations. This is a really amazing achievement. Thank you. Um, so I want to sort of get into what the project is about, but I think before that it might be interesting to get our heads around what your work is in a, in a broader sense. So one of the areas that you work on is financial inclusion. What is it and why is it important? Yeah, so thank you and thanks for asking. So financial inclusion has been a big area of interest in the international development community, I'd say in the last five to ten years especially. So broadly speaking, the idea is that in many parts of the world, people, especially people in lower income brackets, the poor, are um, separated from the formal financial system. So they have a local economy where people may be able to borrow money or save or get help if uh, something bad happens, so like insurance. But those systems are kind of functioning internally with very little liquidity and access to a lot of the financial tools that you would have elsewhere. So financial inclusion is about connecting people to the broader financial system, providing access to a lot more financial tools and providing a lot more liquidity that can improve people's livelihoods. And what are some of the examples of the tools that you might use? Yeah, well, probably the most famous one would be microfinance or microcredit. So, you know, Mohammed Yunus won a Nobel Peace Prize back in the 2000s for that work. And tens, if not hundreds of millions of households have benefited from accessing microfinance institutions. More recently, with the expansion of uh, mobile phone networks, putting um, feature phones and often now smartphones into people's hands, you're starting to see mobile money systems emerge A lot of the focus in financial inclusion has been on accessing bank accounts, and it's in many rural areas especially, it's costly for banks to provide financial services to people. So mobile money systems allow you to transact in a more kind of restricted way just through your mobile phone, and so that's also increasing financial inclusion a lot. And you've been doing work on financial inclusion tools in Myanmar. Why did you choose Myanmar as a place to look at this? I would say that Myanmar chose me in a way. Um, the first honor student I supervised at Sydney came from a ethnically Burmese family and got me interested in doing research there. But it's a really interesting research context for looking at financial inclusion and looking at digital finance in particular. So in, in Myanmar until recently, bank account access and so basically formal financial access was very low, around 10 or 15%. 
And then around 2015, the Myanmar government auctioned off a bunch of mobile spectrum to a couple of international companies. So you went from SIM cards at the time costing around $150 US and maybe 5% of the population or less having access to mobile phones to now there's more phones than people in Myanmar. And so in you know, really just five years, there's been this massive expansion in access to this digital tool, to having feature phones and often smartphones in people's hands. And that's providing a lot of opportunities to expand access to financial services. So could you talk to us a little bit about the ways your work has contributed to more inclusive digital financial practices in Myanmar? Um, a lot of my work involves evaluating the impacts of different interventions that are meant to expand access to finance for the poor. So a lot of researchers work on evaluating government and public sector programs. And what's maybe a bit different about my work is that I often partner with private sector organizations and companies that are interested in, in the impact of their programs. So they might be promoted to partner to do research because they want to know how effective their program is. It might bring them you know, public relations benefits. It might allow them to subsidize some of this pro-poor programming through donor funding and, and things like that. Uh, a couple of recent examples of that in Myanmar would be, uh, one would be in partnership with the World Bank and BRAC Myanmar. Um, so the idea behind that project is that it can be particularly expensive for microfinance institutions like BRAC, which is the world's largest NGO, to bring financial services in rural areas. So even though microfinance has a really cost-effective model to bring financial services to the poor, it's still expensive for MFI agents to go out and meet with clients. For example, in Myanmar, the interest rate on microfinance loans is 28% per year, and about 8% of that interest rate margin is basically the cost of reaching clients in rural areas. So microfinance institutions would love to lower that margin, and we'd love to expand financial services, particularly for farmers. And so the World Bank has uh, funded a project in Myanmar that involves using call data records. So call data records are the metadata that are generated when you use your phone. So it's not the actual calls and texts and social media messages that you post, but it's data that measures the calling and data use patterns that you have. So for example, how often do you refill your phone? How much? How many different people do you text with? What times of day are you typically online or texting or calling with people? These kinds of things can be used to generate dozens or hundreds of variables. And then we try to use those to predict whether people would repay a microfinance loan based on those patterns. So there's been evidence elsewhere in the world that those kind of metadata can predict loan repayment in urban areas. And so this project was testing whether that can work with farming populations. So how is it that the patterns of who you text and what time and how frequently, how does that predict your likelihood of paying back a microcredit loan? Yeah, so you can think about people having different behavioral tendencies, and so different people behave differently. And it may be that some of the same behavioral tendencies that make me have calling patterns in certain ways. For example, maybe if I'm a really reliable borrower, I won't be calling and texting during the day or late at night, for example. That might also correlate with behavioral tendencies that would make me a good borrower. So that's totally empirical question. It might work, it might not. 
it turns out that those kind of uh, metadata records can actually be pretty predictive of people's uh, creditworthiness. And so that would reduce the need for a microfinance institution like BRAC to send loan officers out into the field to actually do in-person assessment. They could potentially just use call data records to score loans and reduce about a third of their cost margin, which would make it a lot easier for them to extend loans in rural areas and to farmers. And so your work was looking at those patterns in rural areas compared to... So our work was actually taking the credit scores as given that was generated by another third-party firm. We're looking at the impacts of the loans on farmers. So we collected baseline and follow-up data from farmers in a rural area in Myanmar. And then we're correlating those loan impacts um, with the credit scores to understand how well the credit scores are doing in predicting loan repayment and loan impacts in this setting. So potentially my work could contribute to expanding inclusive finance by providing more rigorous evidence on the impact of this particular product, which is interesting for BRAC, but um, it would also contribute globally to evidence on whether these call data record-based loan products can be effective in rural areas, which we don't really have much evidence on yet. And so you have another project on the impacts of digital small and medium enterprise loans for mobile money agents in Myanmar. Could you talk us through that and how, how all that works? Yeah, so that's a really exciting project. Um, you know, there's actually been a lot of research on microfinance and much less on financing for slightly larger businesses. So what you might call small businesses in Australia. So small and me medium enterprises, businesses with maybe a handful up to a few dozen employees. And so this is a really cool project um, that was brought about through a partnership between the largest mobile money company in Myanmar. So this company emerged in 2016-17, and they've grown to have a network of 65,000 agents around Myanmar in over 90% of the townships. So they have massive reach. So these agents are typically people who already have a small business in those communities. They're shopkeepers, they're um, hairdressers, they're running a pharmacy, they're running a mobile phone shop, and they also get into the business of processing mobile money transactions. So they're basically the local bank. So if I'm a farmer in a rural area and I have, say, a cousin who's in the city and they're earning money and they want to send money back to me, they can go to a mobile money agent in the city, give them, you know, $50, and then they'll transfer it digitally instantly to me in the village and I can withdraw that $50 in cash. But for that to work, the mobile money agent in the village needs to have that $50 in cash. And if the villager wants to send money back to the city, they need to have basically $50 in digital money to be able to send through the system. And so for that to work, all of these agents need to have liquidity, right? They need to have access to cash and access to e-money. And so that can be tricky if we just rely on their own resources. So this project involved a, a really cool collaboration between the mobile money company and the fifth largest bank in Myanmar, which is uh, has a strong digital strategy. And so that um, bank owns part of the mobile money company. And so they were able to come to an agreement whereby the bank would lend money, so provide liquidity to the mobile money agents. And the credit scoring for those loans is done purely based on the mobile money transactions of the agents. So we look at it, say the agent that I mentioned in the village, let's say they're doing um, $1,000 a month in mobile money transactions. 
then we would use purely that, nothing else about them. We wouldn't know their gender, their ethnic group, you know, any, any other characteristic where we could potentially do subjective credit scoring, but maybe also discriminate against them. We purely use their mobile money transactions and then use basically a scoring rule to offer them a loan. And that loan will be scored. And if they take it up, it can be provided within 24 hours. So this program started in November 2018. And under that program, they've now issued about 15,000 loans to about 8,000 different agents. And so this other project, which is actually also funded by the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation with a much smaller research grant, is looking at the impacts of those loans on mobile money agents, mobile money volumes, which was the intention of the loan. Um, and then we're also fielding a phone survey now of about 8,000 agents to be able to look at the broader impacts of the loans. So although the loans are meant to increase mobile liquidity and mobile money volumes, in practice, there's no restriction on how they're used. So the agents could use them to expand their business. They could spend it on their children, their household, whatever. So our survey is trying to look at those broader outcomes and understand the impacts of this very innovative small business loan in this context. So interesting. Um, and how do these projects, how have they fed into this latest grant that you've got? Is there a link? Uh, not really a direct link, but I think being involved in these projects has established me as one of the key researchers working on these issues in Myanmar. And, you know, these are two projects among many that I've discussed with many people in the industry. You know, we've had events and workshops and other things. So I think when this opportunity came up for the larger grant, I think I was identified as, as a prospective PI, as someone who would be able to really drive this agenda forward, particularly in Myanmar. Really, that was kind of the connection. And so this new project is on interoperable digital finance. So for people who have no idea what that means, well, what is it? Yeah, it's a very descriptive word. So basically the idea is that in my other work, we're looking at the impacts of specific financial products kind of on end users, uh, you know, a digital loan product. But financial inclusion is increasing. End users are more and more accessing these different financial tools. It might be through microfinance institutions. It might be through mobile money companies. But often those user networks don't talk to each other. So if one person in one village is accessing the formal financial system through a mobile money company and another person in another village is accessing it through a microfinance institution, it would not be easy at all for them to, say, send money to each other. To be able to send money to each other, they need to be on the same network. So you've got, in many countries, you're creating a bunch of disjoint networks that don't talk to each other easily. And so interoperability is about creating a back end so all of those networks can talk to each other and reduce a lot of the frictions for people to be able to send and receive money and, and some other benefits that we can talk about. So it sounds almost like... Um computer programming exercise rather than an economics type of project, is it? Yeah, it is an economics project, but the genesis of this was definitely a computer science project. And this is kind of why the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, obviously Bill Gates is one of the world's most famous computer science entrepreneurs. So they've been supporting an organization called Modusbox for the last few years, which is developing a open source interoperable payments system called MojoLoop. And there's staff within the Gates Foundation and their financial inclusion initiative who have developed a set of principles for how these kinds of systems should work, which are called the level one principles. 
And so there are a few different principles that, you know, they say that payments should be instantaneous. So if I send a payment in this system, it should clear within seconds. So even in Australia, if I sent you a bank transfer, it would probably clear overnight if we were in two different banks, right? Um, in these systems, every payment would clear instantaneously. It would be even superior interoperability to the kind we enjoy in some ways in our financial systems. Obviously, I could also PayPal or Venmo you the money and it would be a lot faster, but in some ways it would actually be an upgrade. And other level one principles include pro-poor governance. So there's an eye to the needs of lower income people in the countries where these systems are being implemented. And so what's your role in it? What's your contribution to the project and how do you see it playing out in Myanmar? So the Gates Foundation has been supporting Modus Box to develop Mojaloop, and there's other payment systems around the world that are aligned with the level one principles. For example, Tanzania has developed a system called TIPS that isn't Mojaloop, but it's similar to that. And so the Gates Foundation is also very concerned with evidence and evidence-based policymaking, like in their financial inclusion initiative. So they want you know, social science researchers to come in and evaluate the impacts of these systems. So there's a kind of a nascent theory of change that if you implement an interoperable payment system in a given country, this should reduce frictions to financial transactions and bring about more economic efficiency, but we don't really have evidence for that. And so the role of our project is to start filling that gap in what is right now very much an open frontier. We don't know almost anything kind of rigorously about interoperable payment systems in lower income countries. There is some evidence from the EU and from the US and other um, you know, kind of OECD more advanced countries, but from developing countries, we know very little. So our job over the next three years, and I'm sure beyond that will be to develop thinking on this, um, theories of change, to think more carefully about how these systems might impact the economic system and impact the lives of end users and benefit them, um, where there could be benefit or things could go wrong also, and then to gather data and collect our own data to quantify and measure that and test theories and develop new hypotheses. So do you have any hypotheses at the moment about what you're likely to find? Yeah. So a lot of the first six to 12 months on the project will involve developing a much more rigorous theory of change on this. But we do have a set of of rough ideas about how these systems might benefit or might impact different parts of the economy. So, you know, first of all, step zero, so to speak, is a financial services provider. It could be a bank, microfinance institution, whatever. Uh, In order to join this system, they're going to have to digitize their back end. So that already should create more data and give them more access to information about what they're doing, moving for some institutions from more paper-based data management to digital. So once they integrate with a level one payments aligned uh, system uh, like Mojaloop, then we think that that will bring benefits to their end users. So their end users will be able to send payments across systems. So that will reduce uh, frictions in payments. And we already know that from the research so far on rolling out a single mobile money system, 
We know that when people get access to a mobile money system, they become much more financially resilient. Um, let's say I face a shock, let's say my child gets sick, or let's say there's a weather disaster that damages my crop. If you're my friend and you live in another place and you weren't hurt at that time, you could send me money. And so there's definitely evidence from the, the literature on mobile money that that kind of stuff happens. And so um, we would think at the user level that those kind of benefits would already start happening. But we think that there would be much more broader impacts on the organization of the financial economy in these countries. So interoperable payment systems should allow smaller financial services providers to gain access to a much larger network of users. So think about a given financial system where you have a couple large players, like a couple large banks or microfinance institutions with a bunch of clients, and they're kind of shielding those clients and just offering financial services to them. If they join an interoperable payment system, now you could have small innovative providers that maybe have really cool ideas for inclusive loans, savings products, insurance products, entering the system and competing with those bigger providers for clients. And you see, so you could see a lot more innovation and some potentially restructuring of the market um, in ways that should make it more efficient. Generally, we think as economists, more competition is better and makes things better for end users. Oh, that's amazing. So you're looking at changes not only to the experience of people who use these products, but you're imagining that the introduction of these systems might completely shift how the economic system works in Myanmar. Yep. Great. Well, thanks so much for sharing uh, the information about your research, and we look forward to hearing how the project goes. Thank you.